Well, every week I have the privilege of driving Virginia to school, and um, in addition to getting to spend time with her, which is wonderful, and singing her playlist, um, I get to call my mother. My mother is, um, I think she's 87 now. This could offend her, because um, she'll be watching, and that plays into this illustration. Um, so I have the privilege of, of calling her. I call her at least four days a week um, on the way back to work. And so this past week, on Monday, we were catching up and talking and talking about the week to come. And then she kind of transitioned and she said, did you have to be so graphic? She said, did you have to be so vivid? Did you have to talk about his fat closing over the sword and um, his bathroom habits? Like, what were you doing preaching that text? And I, it took me a moment to gather myself. Um, and I said, well, mother, obviously you have not listened for a few weeks. We transitioned out of Revelation and into Judges. It's not like I just picked that sermon out of the Bible to preach from, even though that would have been a good choice. Um, I said, we're in a new sermon series. And we happen to be in Judges 3, and so that's what we covered. I did not tell her that this week will give her far more to comment on than last week. And you'll see that by the end. You may have never read the end of Judges 4. This may be new information for you. You may not believe that the Bible has these kinds of details in it. So get ready. Um, and if you ever were to put disclaimers, maybe like before the sermon, like maybe cover your children's ears or like, it's, it's not, um, it doesn't have to do with romance per se, it's just kind of graphic. Um, I'll leave it with that. Okay, so this morning we're going to focus on Judges 4, um, almost the whole chapter. And remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We continue our series through Judges. This morning we're in Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, 
taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zeahanim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth, Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. After that reading, I think I need a break. Chris, would you like to take over here? Can we agree that was a mouthful? Oh my, take a little drink of water. So this past week, I came across an article by a man named Paul Carter titled, What Deborah Does and Doesn't Say About Women in the Church. What Deborah Does and Doesn't Say About Women in the Church. And oftentimes when you come to this passage in the book of Judges, it can be a forum for maybe a particular theological perspective to use it as a platform, a jumping off point to present their view of women and the New Testament church. And, and, and they will use this to defend their particular point of view. What was interesting about the article that I read, what Deborah does and doesn't say about women in the church, I agree with his conclusion. What do you think his conclusion was? Deborah, the prophetess and the judge, doesn't really say anything about the role of women in the New Testament church. That's not the point. It's here. That's not the reason. 
that the Lord included this in God's word, we're going to see the most likely reason that God included this other than the fact that it happened. So don't think we're going there. This is not going to be a sermon on the role of women in the New Testament church. This passage is very relevant and timely for God's people for other reasons. I think what's amazing about the book of Judges is just how relevant it is. I do think it was shocking for my mother why in the world we would be covering a passage like last week with Ehud and Eglon. I mean, how is that relevant? How is that helpful? How does that impact our life today? And at the end of the day, it very much is relevant. It does impact the way that we live. We see how all the parts relate to the whole. We see how this thread of redemption is woven through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's amazing. And it is faith building. And we will see the same today from Judges chapter 4. Okay, one of the challenging things about how to understand Deborah is that we don't fully understand exactly what a judge was. A judge was a unique position in Old Testament Israel. A judge, as described by the book. Like, before that, you don't have any judges like this. You have Moses. You have Joshua leading God's people. Then you have the judges. And then the judges are the precursor to what? To Saul, the king. And then once you have kings, you don't have judges anymore. And so the judges, they're not covenant mediators in the same way as Moses and Joshua. And they're not kings like David. So what are they? They're kind of a hybrid position of like a tribal leader, oftentimes a military general, a leader of God's people, an arbiter of disputes, and things like that. So I say this because we, we just, our level of exegetical certainty of exactly what a judge was and how it functioned, we'd have to get into Michael J. Fox's DeLorean and go back in time and interview a lot of the judges to know exactly what a judge was. It was, I mean, the best comparison what would you say manna was during the 40 years that Israel wandered? That was a unique provision of God. It was an extraordinary provision of God for what? An extraordinary time, a unique time. And I think judges are similar. It was a unique provision of God for a very unique time after Moses and Joshua before David the king. That's what the judges were. There are other things we don't know. We don't know if there were other female judges. It's very likely there was more than one judge at a time. I think we can infer from the text that judges showed leadership and direction over particular regional areas, particular geographic areas. Like in this situation, when the Canaanites dealt with the Israelites, how many tribes were called to deal with the threat? 
Do you remember, if you, you're, you're reading comprehension, <laughs> only two. And it's the Canaanites were, were invading and oppressing in a region where those two tribes were. So there were probably lots of judges at any one time. We don't know if there were other women judges, but not only was Deborah a judge, what was she also? She was a prophetess, the text says. She would, she would speak God's word to the people. Um, and we can answer questions about that later. This passage is not about gender roles. This passage is about Yahweh God Almighty. Yahweh God Almighty is the hero of this story. At the end of the day, he is the focus. That's not to diminish Deborah. She is wonderful. And she does show amazing leadership and capability. So this is not to diminish her whatsoever. But God is the hero of this story. As the Lord uses unexpected people and unconventional methods for victory. I think by the end you will agree with that. Okay. Let's briefly summarize verses 1 through 7. So if you've been here before... While we've done the book of Judges, you will see that there's the same pattern every single time. Okay? You will see that over time, the people sin. And when the people sin, what does the Lord do? He allows an enemy to rise up, defeat them, conquer them, and oppress them. And he allows that to happen for a number of years. And with each judge, what happens? Do you remember? Were you awake? This is fun. This is like a big Bible study. That's the way we should consider this, like a big, large group Bible study, without commentary from you, okay? <laughs> Just the way I like it. Um, that was actually a good one. That was not in my... At any rate. So, what, so in this pattern, what happens with each successive judge? Do you know? It gets more intense every single time. The period of their bondage will increase. Oftentimes the period of rest will increase. Things will get, you know, more difficult. And so what it's intended to do, it's called like the cycle of the judges. Things get worse and worse and worse and worse, which ultimately will lead the people to ask for a king, okay? And then they get a king. And what happens with the kings? How does that go at the end of the day? It gets worse, it gets worse, and we're leading up to Christmas. That's what the Old Testament does. How many weeks is it, Jonathan? I don't know. About 10 weeks. So that's what we're doing. And you can see the logic of the Bible as chapter after chapter, it leads us to the true judge and the true savior. And so that pattern's here. So the land experienced rest. Ehud dies. After the period of rest, what do the people do? They begin to sin again. And when it gets bad enough, God allows Jabin and the Canaanites to conquer and oppress a region of Israel. Then what happens? You know what happens. This is what we do. 
Oftentimes when the Lord disciplines us and brings us to the end of ourselves, what do we do? We'll cry out for help. Lord willing, we repent. They repented. And the Lord appointed a woman who was judging named Deborah. She was a prophetess. She was a judge. She would sit under a tree. She would adjudicate matters. She was an unquestioned leader in this part of Israel. Okay? And she wasn't exactly like the other judges because the other judges were not only judges, they also, also served as like military leaders, generals, if you will. They would lead the people in battle. That was not Deborah's role. Deborah is really, she's mentioned for a number of reasons, but one of which is because of Barak. Okay, does, does Barak remind you of anybody in terms of your Civil War history? I don't know if we have any Civil War, War Between the States history buffs. Um, the second general-in-chief of the Union, Union forces was, was General George, what was his last name, do you remember? McClellan, okay? And he was chosen because he was a master organizer. He was incredible at training the troops. Like, logistics, no one was better than McClellan at logistics. He had the northern army as prepared as any armor, army ever. There was just one problem. Do you remember what that was? He wouldn't fight, okay? The people looked good. They were well-fed. They were trained. They would not fight. And like General Lee and others were just running roughshod because McClellan was so conservative and he always overestimated the number of troops of the enemy, and so he wouldn't fight, and, and Lincoln, um, he famously said, if General McClellan does not want to use the army, I would like to borrow it for a time. <laughs> and ultimately, he did, and he got someone who would fight, named Ulysses S. Grant, and buddy, he would fight. Barrack would not fight. He was extremely reluctant. So the context is, Deborah comes to him and she says, hello, hello, what did God tell you to do? Like, didn't God tell you to raise up these troops and deal with the problem? And we don't have a record of exactly what Barak said, but I would imagine he said, yes, he did say that, but did you hear about the 900 iron chariots part? You know, did you hear that that's what the Canaanites have at their disposal, 900 iron chariots? You know, I was with him until he said that part. And so I won't go unless you go with me. So Barak ignored the Lord's command to go, and then he would not go without Deborah. So there was a vacuum of military leadership in Israel and she's gracious and she's wise and she says I'll go I'll go on one condition and then she gives a prophecy what was the prophecy if you were listening I'll go with you Barak but the glory will go to a woman a woman will be the one 
who ultimately, decisively decides the outcome of the battle. He basically says, no problem, come with me, okay? Go to panel six. Mom, if you're watching, I didn't write this. <laughs> These are the inerrant, infallible words of the living God through his Holy Spirit. And a lot of times people are caught off guard that these kinds of passages are in the Bible. But here we go. Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot. So they, 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 you know, they're getting routed. And, and the leader of the Canaanite forces, he flees. He leaves. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was a peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So these kind of family clans and whatnot. And so there was this backstory. There's a peace between Jabin and his house and this other house, the house of Heber, the Kenite. And so that's why Sisera thinks, well, that's a good place to go. They'll give me refuge. They'll give me protection. They'll hide me. I'll be safe there. Verse 18. And Jael, the wife, came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside. Don't be afraid. Hey, come in here. Everything's fine. You'll be well cared for. So he turned aside to her tent, and she covered him with a rug. So she's agreeing, I'm going to hide you. Okay? Verse 19. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. Well, of course he is. He's been in battle. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covers him back up. Verse 20. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. In other words, stand guard, please. And if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. Will you please serve as the lookout? Verse 21. This is when the more direct graphic material comes into play. Jail does not do that. While Sisera is under the rug, Jail, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him, and then there was nothing soft about what she did next. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And then comes um, the biggest understatement in the Bible, and so he died. <laughs> Verse 22, and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come, I'll show you the man that you're seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, notice the repetition, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So friends, what in the world 
does this mean? How does this relate to you and me? What are the modern day takeaways? Well, there is going to be a bit of repetition in the book of Judges. Because if you have a literary eye, if you have an, an eye for detail, what you'll see is in almost every one of the judges, for some reason or another, they are an unlikely or unconventional choice to serve as a judge, okay? Do you remember last week, Ehud? Why was Ehud an unlikely choice? Do you remember? He's called the left-handed savior, the left-handed judge. What the Hebrew literally says is Ehud the judge was disabled in his right hand. He was absolutely the last person you would expect to, you know, basically achieve victory for Israel. Ehud. Now this week, remember each story will intensify. Now we have a woman, Deborah, a prophetess, a judge, and she's not going out to fight their battles. You also have a very reluctant general, Barak. So how in the world are you going to have a female judge and a reluctant military commander defeat an army with 900 chariots of iron? And yet that's exactly what God accomplishes through Deborah, through Barak, and through whom at the end? Because if you cut off the head of the snake, the snake will die. When Sisera is killed, that spells the end for the Canaanites. And who did that? Jail. So I'm going to ask you. All right, I'm just, so don't answer. But if you were at lunch and you had to guess as to why jail is a part of this story, why did God, in his sovereignty and providence, not only appoint Deborah, but jail to do this deed to achieve the victory? Just think about it for a moment. What would you have said if someone would have asked you? What do you think this demonstrates? This demonstrates, among other things, the power and the truthfulness of the word of God. Among other reasons, jail is in here. What is she at the end of the day? She's the fulfillment of an incredibly unlikely prophecy, is she not? How, like at the beginning, Deborah says, okay, I'm going to go with you, but if I go with you, a woman's going to get the glory. How in the world would a woman get the glory in the ancient Near East, in a patriarchal culture, how would a woman get the glory for a military victory? No one could imagine how that could happen by the end of the story. You know exactly how that happens. Sisera, okay, goes into the tent of someone that he did not realize was his enemy, and this was a woman of gumption and strength, and she did what needed to be done to kill the leader of the Canaanites. That shows you that the word of God is always true in every circumstance without exception. And we can glean from this as God's people that the situation is never too hopeless. It's never out of God's control. 
he can and does use the most unconventional, unlikely, unthinkable means to achieve his end. He will never be thwarted. I think that's absolutely amazing when you see that. And if you think about all of the gospel connections, we've talked about this so many times. From the perspective of the world, when the incarnation happened, how, how, how likely was it that Yahweh God Almighty would become incarnate in a Messiah, in a human being? Like, what did the Jews think about God? One of the stumbling blocks is there's no way Yahweh could take on flesh. That was a stumbling block for the Jews. Not only did God take on flesh, where did he grow up? Nazareth. What did Nathaniel say? What did he ask? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a no nobodies were from Nazareth. Was Jesus the son of a king? A nobleman? No. What was his father's trade? A carpenter. What about his followers? Surely his followers were from the highest strata of society, right? Isn't that right? No. They were prostitutes, tax collectors, fishermen, the most low of the low. And that's who God appointed to extend his kingdom. God chose a crucified Christ to bring redemption to you and me. The moral of this story is that you can trust him. You can trust him with all the issues of your life, all the matters of your heart, all the sicknesses, the trials, the difficulties. This is a God you can trust. Don't try to read Providence. You can't figure out what he's doing, but you know the one who has your future my future, this church's future, your children's future, in his hands. He is more than capable, more than powerful enough, wise enough to accomplish his ends. This teaches us that, that human beings are not the remedy. All we do is mess it up. The most relevant thing from the book of Judges is it showing you the kind of savior that you really need. You need a judge, you need a redeemer who can fix it one and for all and he has provided that in the person of Jesus Christ. This was such an unlikely way to achieve victory and yet that's exactly what happened. And guess who we're gonna see next week? We're gonna see Gideon who's gonna be equally unlikely and then others, far from being irrelevant, these are some of the most relevant truths we could possibly know, and we learn it from the book of Judges. I think that's amazing. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for this very vivid text, this, um, this text that is in some ways graphic and direct, but it's not gratuitous violence. It is, it, is, it is violence with a purpose. It is, it is fulfilled prophecy. It is a reminder that the word of God can be trusted in every single circumstance, ultimately fulfilled through the actual word of God, the true judge 
and Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, as we um, begin another week, this is the beginning of a new week. As we feel oppressed like the Israelites did, oppressed under the heavy hand of, of Jabin, king of the Canaanites, oppressed under the heavy hand of sin, oppressed under the heavy hand of, of cancer or illness or infirmity or disability or, or wayward children or whatever, as we, as we labor under that kind of difficulty and oppression, remind us to look to the greatest judge of them all, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that regardless of what happens, he's with us, he loves us, and he will bring us home. We pray in his matchless name, amen and amen.